Hey, everybody. Uh, very quick intro to today's show. Um, Eric and I, uh, we did speak about Edwin Diaz and how excited we were for the season. And on Wednesday night, Edwin Diaz was injured um, celebrating Puerto Rico's win over the Dominican Republic in the World Baseball Classic. Uh, it is currently 5.45 a.m. on Thursday. Um, we have had no formal diagnosis on Diaz's knee, but um, again, it, things don't look good. So uh, we will provide updates either at the Apple or uh, a new, our next episode here on Simply Amazing. But uh, just a, a heads up, today's episode is uh, prior to Diaz's injury, and uh, we'll keep you guys posted. We know what you know. Hang tight. Here comes the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. It's another episode of Simply Amazing. Uh, due to work and teaching constraints, Taryn is not with us this week. So everybody, if you see Taryn on Twitter, say you missed him. Tell him, tell him that we need him back uh, ASAP because he's become my better half. But... Yeah, as a, a very, very strong consolation prize, my buddy and, and your friend, I'm sure you've read his stuff on Twitter and whether uh, you've seen it elsewhere, we'll we'll get into all that. But uh, author of, oh boy, over a half dozen books and a good friend, Eric Sherman. Uh, Eric, really welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you. Well, the pleasure is all mine, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on today. Oh, not a problem, man. It's um, it was uh, we were actually I was very lucky lucky to be on the same uh, panel as you at the Queens Baseball Convention this year, and uh, we we talked about it that day. I said, "Oh, we have to we have to make this happen." And boy, with the with the new book coming out and with opening day right around the corner, two weeks two weeks away, friends. If you're you're going to be listening to this on Thursday, so uh, yeah, we're right around the corner. It's today. I think right now would be a good time to get to get that uh, wheel rolling. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just can't wait for the baseball season to start. Oh, my goodness. I think uh, I think everyone's waiting uh, on the edge of their seats for this season. I mean, Mets fans included, of course, because everything is very, uh, very exciting for Mets fans these days. But I think just the 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 hope springs eternal uh, of baseball season, whether it's the players, the fans. And I mean, you're even seeing it with the World Baseball Classic. I think you're kind of infusing the game with this, you know, very unique energy at such an early point in the year. Um, it should be it should be really fun to get things started uh, once the regular season kicks off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the World Baseball Classic, I've, I've, I've never seen that ballpark in Miami more electric than it's been over the last week or so. I, it's just unbelievable. First of all, yeah, I mean, you know, you never see it full. Um, you, know, you never see a sellout like you're seeing now. And the fans are just going crazy at every pitch. And um, so but with the World Baseball Classic, you know, I I have mixed feelings about it. Um, I think it was Scherzer the other day that was saying that, you know, he was a little bit critical of it because of the effect that it might have on starting pitchers, you know, starting pitchers this time of year. They really shouldn't be letting loose um, like they are in this tournament and it can induce injuries and uh, it's a little bit risky. But listen, anything that's that will you know bring out the fans and the excitement of the game, 
I, I think ultimately it's a good thing, but I certainly understand Scherzer's point. Oh, absolutely. And I think um, he made another point regarding possibly shifting this to another part of the season. And I think we've seen the NHL do it when the Olympics come around, where you take a two week break or what have you. And, and, you know, you, you fill it in with a, a league wide or a worldwide tournament, I should say. And, uh, you know, you have, guys who are fresh you have guys who are playing at their absolute best you know not two weeks into spring training where you know we're familiar familiar as baseball fans where our uh our, our players are at at this point in the year and and you know whether that i'm sure that takes uh you know at least you know some dedicated time to prepping themselves for you know a high stakes tournament in the middle of march yeah, I would wait actually until the end of the year. I I think even if you do it in the middle of the season, um, you know, you risk injury to some really key pl- players and it can affect pennant races. I would wait till the end of the year, you know, after the World Series ends. Um, to me, that would make the most sense um, because right now I, I think the pitchers uh, really have to go slowly into the season. Um, so anyway, like I said, if it brings excitement to the game, uh, that, you know, that's a good thing. Um, shifting from the world baseball classic to the, to spring training, uh, any thoughts on the pitch clock so far? Uh, pitch clock, oh. new, the enlarged bases, the, the new rules, I should say. Well, I, I like the pitch clock a lot. Um, I, uh, you know, it, it's just necessary. Uh, the game is dra- dragging. We're living in a TikTok age now where, you know, things have to move along quickly. And, and if you look at the other sports, um, they all move much, much quicker than baseball games did. Um, but, you know, honestly, Tim, you know, the pace of these games uh, with the pitch clock, all it's doing really is it's taking us back to when we were kids, you know, when we were watching games, well, at least for me, back in the 70s and the 80s. And, um, so, you know, I, I'll never forget. And I tell the story all the time. Uh, the first game I ever saw in the new Yankee Stadium uh, back in 1976, um, Catfish Hunter was pitching against the Red Sox. Yankees won the game one nothing. The game went 10 innings. Catfish Hunter pitched all 10 innings. Time of game was two hours, 16 minutes. Um, and if you look at any, you know, you can look at YouTube or anything like that, and you watch the pace that a guy like Catfish Hunter, who was pretty exemplary of his day uh, with his pace, I mean, he just, he didn't wander off the pitching, you know, too far away from the pitching rubber. He just got the ball, got the sign and and pitched. And, and so I think we're going to be going back to that. And I think it's a really, really healthy thing for the game. And they're working out kinks in spring training. And that's what spring training's for. Now, bigger bases. Uh, I was out in Arizona uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, I couldn't tell the difference from, you know, from the stands. Uh, I can't tell the difference when watching TV. If it's safer for the base runners, it's fine. You know, the old timers will say it's ridiculous. Um, that second baseman need to learn how to properly get out of the way of an ensuing base runner, um, that there's an art to that. Um, but Hey, I mean, I think that's minor. Um, see, so so the, the bait, the bases thing, I think it's going to be very, very subtle 
but I think yeah. it's going to increase offense because, you know, baseball is a game of inches and whether that, you know, 90 feet is a perfect, perfect size. I know that the distance is still going to be 90 feet on bases, but, um, you know, just whether it's going to result in, in someone getting to the bag a little bit quicker or whatever, what have you, someone, you know, reaching and, and steal, swiping a base a little bit easier. They're going to be very subtle changes. But again, I think it's all going to lead to a faster paced, higher offense game, which, you know, and this is kind of encompasses the pitch clock as well. Is it maybe too much, too fast for some fans, some players? I mean, I've heard points being very well made that um the the players association you know was against a, a pitch clock they were okay with the with the bases i believe but oh sure they only had a, a committee of uh a, a, a three-person committee on a 12 uh, a three-person panel on a 12-person committee so you know this cards were stacked against them to begin with i'm just i'm very curious as to where this all heads i'm very curious as to if they did too much a little bit too quickly but you know, kind of ringing to what you were saying about Catfish Hunter. Uh, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking to Randy Jones, who's recovering from some health stuff right now. We wish Randy the best. Um, this is going back a few years now, but uh, he spoke in detail about a hour, 29 minute complete game. Well, nine inning game, uh, him versus Jim Cott in wow. 1977, which I believe still stands as a major league record. You know, if if major league baseball is trying to get things down to the three hour mark on average or under the three hour mark on average, that would be great. Cause the Mets played, you know, over a dozen games of over three and a half hours, nine inning games last year. Um, and that's just, you know, that's, that's too much for some people. I mean, I have to be up early for work. That's, that's too much for me. But you know, you get to a certain point, but yeah, I'm, I'm curious to see how it all shakes out. I'm curious to see if it sticks. If, yeah. if baseball said maybe we did too much here. Yeah, no, I think, um, you know, with the shift, that'll increase offense. But I think the pitch clock, another thing it's going to do is it'll improve defense because yeah. the, you know, the fielders, they'll they'll be ready, you know, like, like they won't be just standing around like they'll they'll be in position and they'll be ready. And I, I think defenses typically um, feel better. Um, when the pitcher works quickly and yeah. it's, it's going to keep them on their toes. And so I, I just think it's going to be a better game, but boy, when I was at a couple of spring training games, it was amazing how much quicker the game goes. Um, I mean, you know, you're, you're barely finishing your chicken nuggets and, uh, the game <laughs> is over, you know? <laughs> hey, you know, um, I think that's probably also got to be taken into consideration is how, you know, teams feel and stadiums feel about hey we're shortening up our game uh we, we have to i guess kind of uh adjust as well and yeah, i think it's going to be a multi-layered process but i do i do agree with you it's good for the game it's going to result in, in in a more potent form of this game that we love and yeah i think that combined with the uh, the general excitement of what's going on with our our Mets right now, I think everything can kind of be um, summed up as wow. <laughs> um, now, Eric, you you've had you have a very innate knowledge and history with 
with the, pretty much everything New York Mets. I mean, starting with, yeah, you wrote a book with Davey Johnson that's called My Wild Ride. Um, excuse me, My Wild Ride in Baseball and Beyond. Uh, you wrote a book with Art Shamsky, of course, member of the 1969 Miracle Mets called After the Miracle. It's a lasting brotherhood of the 69 Mets, which, by the way, I bought that from my mom and she loved it, Eric. Loved oh, it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Um, and of course, Kings of Queens, which is the story of the 86 Mets by Eric Sherman. And, uh, not to be outdone, we actually have the other side of the 86 Mets is the two sides of glory. It's a, a story of the, uh, the, for the 86 World Series of the 86 season from the Red Sox point of view, which I really enjoyed. But, um, Eric, then, have but, you, and, have and, you experienced? And, and don't forget, there? and don't forget about Mookie. I, oh, of I course, didn't. and Mookie. My apologies, and Mookie. It, <laughs> I had to scroll my page down. <laughs> um, now, you, of course, like as I was saying, you have such a, a deep knowledge of this organization, this franchise, you know, some of the just cornerstone players and, and pieces of very, you know, the highest peaks of this franchise. Are And of course, your time as a fan as well. Are you... Have you been, have you seen such a, an excitement generated around the New York Mets as you're seeing right now? Well, I think there is a tremendous amount of excitement going into 85. Um, it, because what happened, you know, the, as, as you well know, Tim, the Mets from the time they traded Seaver and Kingman uh, mid-season in 77 uh, through 83, I mean, they were a really, you know, awful baseball team. I mean, they they weren't just they weren't just a bad team, but they were boring. And you know, when fans would go to Shea Stadium back back then, I mean, certainly you had some exciting players. You know, you had Lenny Randall, and who was really a terrific all-around player, um, underrated in my book, uh, Lee Mazzilli, Craig Swan, but you had a lot of guys that. You know, everyday players that would hit, you know, 235, 240, you know, they were good for maybe eight or nine home runs. And, and you know, the pitching wasn't bad, but it, there was, no, you know, without Seaver and Kuzman and Madelak anymore, you know, they were just okay. Um, not a lot of excitement. Then all of a sudden, 84 comes out of nowhere where they go from, you know, being a perennial seller dweller team for seven years to winning uh 90 games and it, that was davy johnson's first year as manager um it was daryl strawberry's first full season with the team dwight gooden's first year um you know keith, keith hernandez that was his first season you know first full season so they they shocked everyone in fact i remember the summer of 84 thinking you know, this is what it, 1969 must have felt like. You know, I was only three years old then, but I'm thinking this is what it must have felt like. And so they, you know, take the Cubs right down to the wire. Um, I think it was the most fun Mets fans have ever had, 84. And that includes 86, by the way, um, because it it was so unexpected. Now, after 84, they go out and they acquire uh, through a trade Gary Carter, who was, you know, 
without question, the best catcher in the game, one of the best catchers of all time. And they add him to that team that they already had that won 90 games. And to me, entering a season, there was never more fervor and anticipation than 85. Of course, they just barely lost in 85, but they won, uh, I want to say, 98 games. Um, And um, then 86, going into that season, there was a sense, even from the top with Davey, saying, you know, we're not just going to win, we're going to dominate. Um, and that's when they added some subtle pieces like Bobby Ojeda. They got him from the Red Sox for Calvin Chiraldi and, and Ojeda had pretty much been the model of mediocrity with the Red Sox, you know, as far as, you know, win loss record, um, you know, then he comes to the Mets and he's the ace of the staff in 86. Tim Tuffle was another like subtle pickup because, you know, Backman was, an excellent left-handed hitter, but from the right side, not nearly as good. So they pick up Tuffle. Um, you know, so 85, 86, but really 85, uh, I think even more so than this season. This season, Tim, you know, the Mets, I mean, they're going to be in the toughest division in baseball. The Phillies have really improved on a pennant winning team um, with some of their additions. Uh, the Braves are just, I mean, all their players are in their prime right now. Um, that's going to be a tough division. And I mean, really what the Mets did, I mean, they made some solid acquisitions, but, um, you know, people don't talk enough about um Verlander and how if Verlander can pitch an entire season injury free, that's a huge upgrade over DeGrom. And I love DeGrom, but, you know, he just had so many injuries over the last three seasons. And, you know, I think they got what six wins out of him last year or some, something like that. Um, I mean, if Verlander can go out and win, you know, 18, um, you know, moving into DeGrom's spot. Um, yeah, the, the Mets might win 105 games, you know, so we'll see. The division's tough. Even the Marlins are better. So, um, oh, yeah. I think I, the Nationals are going to be a tough team. I really do. Really? <laughs> I know. I, I honestly, I, I think that's just, it's a super talented, very, very young team. Like, don't get me wrong, they're a few years away from actually yeah. contending. But boy, they're going to be some tough series against Washington, against Florida. Uh, excuse me. I still call them Florida. My mistake. Against <laughs> Miami. Um, yeah, I think it's going to be a, a very tough division. And, and I, you know, a, a tip of the cap to the Mets for going out and pivoting so smoothly to say, all right, we just lost a franchise player into Grom. What do we do? Boom. We're getting Justin Verlander. And, uh, you know, Tying him up with Max, I mean, you have two, not just, you know, co-aces, you have two future inner circle Hall of Famers um, leading your rotation. And and just the leadership that's going to kind of trickle down from those two throughout the rest of the rotation. I mean, you, you got Carrasco in there, you got two young guys in in McGill and Peterson. Um, the, the news with Quintana is is you know, very concerning, uh, all the best to Jose Quintana. I mean, that's, um, 
scary stuff. You know, what started with a stress fracture is turned into a, uh, a, a lesion on his rib and, you know, know. It, it, you know, nothing, nothing cancerous, but it's going to be a bone graft surgery. He's out till July, you know, all the best to him, but man, shame on me for saying that, uh, that, that the Mets should have uh, been entertaining trades for David Peterson this off season. Cause it looks like they're going to need him. Oh, absolutely. They're going to need P- Peterson. They're going to need all hands on deck. Um, and, you know, even, uh, you know, with, you know, with the Scherzer and a Verlander, you know, you're going to have to spell them every once in a while. Sure. Um, you, It's, uh, you know, I would like to have seen them pick up another hitter, another bat, but we'll see, you know, they, um, they, they have a nice mix of young players and veterans. And um, I mean, I think they're going to be really good. Um I, you know, I think the Mets will win 95 to a hundred games and and it's just on the strength of the, of the division. And, and I think they have some age in their pitching. Um, and I mean, it, it would be difficult to expect Diaz to be as brilliant out of the bullpen this year. Uh, I mean, he was a Cy Young candidate last year. He was. Yeah. Cy, got Cy Young and, and a couple of MVP votes or possibly one MVP vote. He should have. If, yeah. I mean, he, he was remarkable and, you know, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. I, I remember, um, uh, you know, you mentioned earlier about my book on the 69 Mets that I did with art um, after the miracle. I remember being in the car or a van that I rented and, you know, it was such a great moment. We were driving up to see Seaver um, at his vineyard and home in Calistoga, California and, um, it is after the miracle, correct? After the miracle, yep. Yeah. And you know, I had Kuzman riding shotgun, and I had uh, Shamsky, Swoboda, and Harrelson in the back. And and I remember we talked about Diaz, and you know, this would have been 2017, and and you know, he was just getting it, Diaz was just getting hit so hard. And I I remember Kuzman telling me, um, you know, he hoped that. The Mets wouldn't give up on that kid, he said, because he has electric stuff and it just needs to be harnessed, you know, and someone like Kuzman, you know, remembers another flamethrower like Nolan Ryan, you know, sometimes it takes time. You know, it took Randy Johnson time. Uh, It took Sandy Koufax time, Uh, you, you know, so hopefully Diaz has found it um, and he's harnessed you know, because if he has, I mean, he's, I mean, he's the best reliever in baseball. Oh, absolutely. He's certainly, you know, I, it's very tough to put him up there with Mo Rivera, but um, in recent memory, I mean, you know, who's been that dominant just so consistently. And like you said, the, the, the evolution of him as a player and shaking off the rust and, and finding himself. And you almost watch that confidence build from outing to outing from month to month, from year to year. And look, at he's just turned into a machine. It's so impressive. Eric, we're going to take a real quick break just to hear from our sponsors. We're going to come right back. All right. Great. Excellent. Everybody hang tight. And we are back. Back with Eric Sherman, author of Oh, I reckon I'm gonna do it again. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll give you the number. So um I I have eight books out there and I'm working on my ninth right now. <laughs> nice. And now you got 
daybreak at Chavez Ravine, the story of um, Fernando Valenzuela coming out, right? Or it's out now? Um, well, you can order it through Amazon, but the official release date is May 1st. Um, but yeah, if you use Amazon, you can get it in, I think, a couple of days now. Um, what is this newfangled invention called Amazon? It's just incredible. <laughs> you know, they they, they had um, the books were printed early and oh, cool. And Amazon uh, fulfilled all their orders, their pre pre orders. So um, oh, nice. you can get through them. But if you want to, you know, support your local bookstores, then just hold out till May 1st on that. And and so real, real quick, um, Daybreak at Chavez Ravine. Uh, Fernando Mania and the remaking of the Los Angeles Dodgers. It's 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 more or less on the impact of Fernando um, that he had not just on um, baseball, but more specifically on the Mexican-American community um, and not just in Los Angeles, but around the world, uh, the effect he had on Latinos. Um, but, you know, Dodger Stadium, um was built in Chavez Ravine, where it sits today. And before Dodger Stadium, there were three neighborhoods comprised mostly of Mexican-Americans. And that land uh, was owned by the city. And originally, it was earmarked for affordable housing. But in the early 50s, with the Red Scare, um, affordable housing was deemed to be socialist. So the city was stuck with 300 acres of prime real estate and they um, lured the Dodgers to leave New York and to go out there. And and um, but some of the residents of Chavez Ravine were like, hey, you know, um, we don't want to sell or if we do sell to the city, then we want what our homes are worth, you know, not 50 cents on the dollar like a lot of the other um sellers were getting um so um some of them literally because it was um that land was seized through eminent domain um some of those residents were literally dragged from their homes and watched as their homes some of them they had owned those homes for three generations um watched them get bulldozed right before their very eyes and and so it was an awful, awful visual um, and reality for these people and, uh, you know, for Mexican-Americans. So they were not Dodger fans until Fernando came came along and and set the world on fire in 1981. And Dodger Stadium went from having 5% Mexican-Americans and Latinos to having 50%, uh, especially on games that he pitched. And if you go to Dodger Stadium today, those numbers are pretty similar. Um, I was going to say it's really it's really reverberated. I mean, you know, the yeah. the, the, the Latino presence at, at a Dodger game is felt. It's loud. It it energizes the stadium. It's it, it's 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 woven into the fabric of of Dodger Stadium, and it's it's it makes it one of the most you know unique and and just wonderful places in the in the game. Yeah, and and you'll see more Fernando throwback jer- jerseys um, <laughs> than than you will most of their current current players. Um, but um, I interviewed um, nearly a hundred people in Fernando's in, inner circle and outside of his inner circle. 
Um, and I, I, I think, um, fans of Fernando are, are going to learn an awful lot about not just him, but his impact that he had on the game, which I would put him on the Mount Rushmore of most impactful, um, baseball people associated with the game. I say people instead of players, because I put Marvin Miller on that Mount Mount Rushmore along with Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson. And, and I honestly would put uh, Fernando right there with those three. Now in, in the sense of what he did on the field or what he did off the field or, or a combination of both. Oh, I think um, on the field, um, you know, he's revolutionary in some senses. Yeah. I mean, he's an intensely private person. Um, which is why um, I didn't interview him for this book, mm-hmm. um, but that's part of his charm, and it's and and it's and it plays a big role in this book. I mean, this is a guy that turns down offers to sign autographs for a couple of hours at a card show that would pay him in excess of forty thousand dollars for mm-hmm. two hours' work oh, because yeah. he just doesn't want to be um, amongst the masses. Um, he's very private. Ironically, he's one of the Spanish language um, analysts, uh, but he leaves games in the seventh inning, you know, to avoid people. It's it's um, so it's part of the story. It's um, he's just an, an intensely private in, individual. Um, but when you talk about his impact, um, you know, I, I mean, he he was in the game for, I think, eight weeks at the time and. Uh, you know, he started off he threw six shutouts and I think his first eight starts and <laughs> he gets invited to the White House and to a luncheon with the Mexican president who was in town to uh, meet with President Reagan. And and uh, they call it the Fernando factor that uh, following that 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 lunch, that um, legislation was passed um, to give, you know, to lead the way from Mexican Americans to get their citizenship in this country. And, and so when you do talk about his impact, it wasn't just on the field, but it was off the field as well. You're oh, right. sure. I mean, if you look before Fernando, I mean, you know, for, for upper crust Latin American starting pitchers or Latino starting pitchers, um, you know, you had your Juan Marichals, you had, you know, few and far between almost. But then, you know, you look forward and look at the impacts that, they, you know, look at maybe Denny, Denny Martinez had um, in pitching. And now, I mean, even today, I mean, how the, the game has grown. I, I would, you know, I know he wasn't the first or the last, but I would certainly put him up on the, on the list of people who continued that trajectory of, growing the sport and and mainstreaming the uh, mainstreaming the i guess the the greatest players of each of these you know very very small baseball wild countries you know of course mexico's a large country but you know that's spread to you know it's such a big game in puerto rico it's a huge game yeah. in the dominican republic you know that it reverberated in, in, at least in my mind and i think that you know at least in its place in time i think that player fernando's you know ascension and and peak probably played a very very big part in the next generation of of young latino players yeah you know, putting putting all their eggs into the baseball basket 
Yeah, I think it helped me. Well, you 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 never had um, scouts actively looking for players um, in in Mexico before Fernando, sure. uh, but. You know, globally, though, he opened up the doors to the Hideo Nomos of the world from Japan. Oh, sure. You know, I'm just looking at this is 1983. And before Fernando, I looked back a few years, there weren't many Latino pitchers in NL Cy Young voting. In the years after, and this is in 1980, as I said, 1980, 1982, my apologies. Uh huh. Just in the top nine, you had Fernando Valenzuela. Uh, Joaquin Andujar and Mario Soto. Just oh, what? oh Just Joaquin Andujar? Yeah. You have guys who are probably getting a few more eyes on them and a little, little bit more confidence going out there. And, uh, and you know, look, I think that you probably saw ripple effects right away. You really did. Yeah. And, um, and not just with Latino players, like I said, you know, in Asia and elsewhere. And uh, he opened the doors where, you know, te- teams were like, you know, we should really look harder beyond the U.S. for players. And um, so, yeah, he he had an effect on all of baseball, um, but he is an absolute legend um, with the Latino and particularly the Mexican-American community. Well, I am getting getting my ducks in a row, and um, I'm going to go ahead and get my Amazon one, my pre-order bought, and I'm also going to hit my bookstore because I love my local bookstore, and I'm going to hit that on May 1st. But I'm really looking forward to it, Eric. I can't wait. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Um, any plans for the season? Any you got any um, any projects you're working on for the uh, for the upcoming uh, 2023 season? Well, I absolutely am. I mean, I'll be uh, in Los Angeles. Uh, the first week of the Fernando book release. So I'll be doing media out there and book signings. Um, so if anybody and if, if any of your listeners are out in Los Angeles, um, you know, you can follow me on Twitter at at by Eric Sherman. Um, and I always give details on where I'm going to be um, through Twitter um, or Eric Sherman baseball.com. Um, I'm working on a new book project now with Dwight Evans. Um, nice. And, you know, everybody knows Dwight is uh, one of the greatest Red Sox of all time. He's in the top three offensive categories with the team in almost everything. And, and he was one of the greatest defensive right fielders of all time with just a rifle of an arm and really an underrated player in my book. I believe he should be in the hall of fame. I hope he still gets there. Um, but there was something else at work, which a lot of people don't know about. He had, you know, he was playing at the top of his game while, while parenting and taking care of um, two sons that suffered from NF, um, which is commonly referred to as elephant man's disease. And, and they both recently passed away. Um, But they both had over 40 surgeries each. And so while he was playing at such a high level, um, he was caring for these two boys, uh, of course, along with his wife, Susan, and um, many sleepless nights coming straight from the hospital to the ballpark and um so he's just an extraordinary man of strength that he was able to play under those circumstances 
as well as he did. Um, so this is going to be my, it, it kind of keeps with all the books that I've done my books. Um, I, I can say it, it's baseball. the intersection of life and baseball, Eric, and that's really, what I love about your books. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. It's, um, you know, my stories are more human interest. Um, and, um, and they go well beyond the game uh, and into real life challenges. Um, yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So this is, oh, and that's the beauty one. of it. Cause this is what baseball teaches us. It teaches us that, oh, it's not always going to be, you know, 10 run blowouts go in your, in your direction. It's going to be coming the other way too. And, you know, it's, it's a game of adjustments. And that's life and baseball. Eric, I can't thank you enough for spending some time, man. I wish we had another half hour to go. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come back anytime, Tim. You know that. Excellent, man. Well, best of luck to you with the new book, with the ongoing projects, and uh, we'll have to do this again sometime soon. Sounds good, Tim. All right, everybody, Eric Sherman, at Eric Sherman on Twitter. Let me make sure I had that correct. Uh, it's at oh, by oh, Eric Sherman. at by Eric Sherman. My apologies. No, I, no. Talk Some, about like a ninety nine percent perfect show, and then oh, we slip. Uh, no, <laughs> you know, I believe it or not, there's another author named Eric Sherman who also spells his name with a K, <laughs> and and he and he he's a terrific guy, very talented writer, but he has the um, at Eric Sherman. So I am at by B Y. Eric Sherman on Twitter. So and it's um, Eric with a K folks. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Not a problem. Eric um, can't wait to do it again. Again, best of luck with everything. We'll help plug the book when it comes out and uh, everybody will be back uh, very soon. Definitely with another update before opening day. And uh, you guys know the sign off. It's let's fucking go Mets. We'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>